Welcome, travelers. This is Beautiful Flying Radio. This is Guabo, Orin Puff, Gary, Rich, Michael. We thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for coming out. When I was young I asked many questions light or anything no nah, it'll do it it'll, it'll do it by itself yeah just keep it in the middle there that's good okay gary height the gary height the mayor of heightville sitting in the seat of honor the commodore's chair in the beautiful flying machine today it's an it, honor to be here man I, it is an honor to have you here um me and Gary go way back. We go way, way back. Back to where did we meet each other? Was before it? you people were even born. <laughs> <laughs> Some of you guys might have uh, you've read in my bio that I was a member of a of a band back in the day called the Mammals of Zod. Well, Gary is the founder of the Mammals of Zod, and among many other things, but just. For those who know me and know who I am, how we how we are tied together in so many other ways too. But I keep waiting for the mammals of Zod to become like uh, a, some sort of underground sensation, but it still hasn't happened. Well, I always liked your idea where the mammals of Zod have some kind of dancing girls in go-go boots or something like that. Oh yeah, free jazz dance party. Yeah, we. I did a um, a thing like that at this club here called Shiner's called Free Jazz Dance Party, uh, and it really worked out well. I had to I had to get a couple ringers in there uh, to you know get the whole thing going. But <laughs> but in, what wasn't Soul Train just like a bunch of ringers? Yeah, right. You know, and a you bunch just, of awesome ringers. You had to plant the idea in people's head, you know. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but. Uh, but yeah, it's like once people like with avant-garde music, people are conditioned to sort of sit there in an uncomfortable chair and you know wish they it was over. And, <laughs> but it's so much more fun to listen to if you can move around.
I mean, what is free jazz? Well, you hear this word a lot, and usually it's in some academic setting, setting where some kid just gets out of, uh, you know, college. He studied music for four years, and he says, well, every now and then we get together and play some free jazz. <laughs> what is it? Okay, I think, uh, like, I almost use that, that phrase as a, as a sort of joke, right? Uh, well, okay, so free jazz was the name of, of an Ornette Coleman album. But uh, Ornette Coleman really did something called harmelotics, right, which was almost structured. But I think people just use free jazz to say when they just do an unstructured improvisation is, you know, generally what it's used to mean. But the people who are out there doing uh, totally unstructured improvisations, like the, the people we used to hang out with in New York, uh, they would just call it the music. Oh, well, I... The I see. I missed that part. That 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 subtle reference to the the music. yeah. They would just call it the music. I mean, because because I remember when I first heard "Lonely Woman" by Ornette Coleman, it blew my mind. Yeah, I I was like, this is it was that thing. It was uh, intangible. I couldn't describe it. What it was that I was hearing, but it made me feel so. Uh, so full of the world is full of possibility and magic somehow and i thought wow i have to get in touch with this kind of music it, you'd never know it if you listen to my records now but uh maybe a little bit in there i well i, I think I can... we probably both spent a lot of time talking to daniel carter yeah <laughs> yeah he explained it to me a lot you know in different ways just usually by asking questions in this sort of socratic method but I guess the idea was that uh, in classical music in the early 20th century, people were doing all this atonal stuff and microtonal stuff and uh, things with different meters and uh, things that sounded dissonant, you know. And um, then if you combine that with the idea of uh, what was developing in jazz with people improvising and, you know, at first staying within a tonal signature... But then at a certain point, they're just like, screw it. Let's just, you know, I mean, if people in classical music are spending all this time composing dissonance, we can just play dissonance. Right, right, without, right, right, right. You know what I mean? And it's just like, let's see, uh, you know, what happens where the music takes us. And I think that's when they started calling it the, it the music because it, these were people who were just like following the music where the music wanted to go rather than like trying to decide. Like it wasn't about entertaining an audience uh, or fulfilling anybody's expectations of what the music should be, but rather letting the music direct itself towards wherever the music wanted to go. And, of course, that's always led to a problem with audiences, <laughs> you know? He's selling tickets. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard. <laughs> because, I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, you know, if you're just walking down the street and you come across some of this, it... Some people, a small percentage of the people, will just be amazed, and it'll it'll be a wonder to behold. And some people are just going, "What's all that noise?" <laughs> I've seen it, you know. Yeah, and and some people get pissed off. Yeah, you know, there's there's a certain percentage of people who are enraged. Yeah, what and, is that? Is it that? Uh, is it that beauty has to be laid out in special? prescribed in increments uh, or is it just what well, is it i think it's just because uh like there's something about trauma 
where like somebody who's been traumatized, they need to enact that trauma onto other people. It's like a compulsion. Have you heard about this? It's like a psychological yeah. compulsion. It's like... Um, like a perpetuation of violence, let's say. Yeah, and so it's like, say if somebody has found a space of freedom and somebody uh, else has been like traumatized so that they have no freedom inside themselves, when they see that, their, their, their urge is going to be to colonize it. Like they need to go and get their, like their guns and their howitzers and like subjugate that territory as soon as they see it because, you know, it's probably not being properly exploited. Right, it's, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the natives are like, are just you know laying around on the beaches naked and enjoying the fish, and it's just like that can't be. They must be stopped. Yeah. And and uh, I remember the stories about uh, like all this uh, beautiful women in the South Seas, and you know you could just go out there and uh, have your way with them or whatever. And, uh, you know, like uh, this sort of Gauguin kind of thing and stuff like that. Well, I mean, this, these Europeans were going out there and taking advantage of these, you know, the hospitality and the, just like these people out there in these islands had like, uh, you know, evolved this sort of blissful, accepting way of life. And then you get these pushy assholes coming from Europe and just basically running around raping everybody. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like... And they're all like, oh, these women are so accepting. <laughs> no, it's like, well, yeah, you, you haven't been like uh, stomped to death yet because these people are really hospitable. start sort of it was at the museum of sound recording do you remember this now i'm see i'm the, i'm remembering like the first time i ever saw you perform uh -huh. was at uh what i call uh love sphere zero it was at a place called um exit art oh exit art right 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 i and it was on the equinox i think it was on march 23rd and march 24th you were on march 24th with the gametones at right. um at Exit Art. And on March 23rd, the Mammals of Zod played uh, at this place called AKA Lounge. And at that time, Mammals of Zod... Uh, see, I had I had been... Um, I had these, these guys I went to high school with. After I finished college, I went to Austin to meet up with them and play music. And we had a band called the Mammals of Zod. And we, where, does that, where does that name come from? General Zod from uh, Superman. Yeah. Right? Uh he was a sort of inspiration, and um, uh, we think we were driving around in a car. And, talking about Christopher Reeve, Superman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was, I guess it was uh, Superman 3, right? 
Well, I had earlier had a band called um, Big Snuffy with Marlon Brando as Jor-El, Superman's father. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a kind of thing to have. Because, I mean, it was kitsch. You know, we hated those movies. It was, I mean, but you had to love them, too. I mean, at that point, I think the thing that made superhero movies suddenly become, like, such a major part in our, our culture was really advances in fabric technology. Cause you, if you remember those, those old superhero movies, their, their costumes would always have <laughs> little kind of baggy, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was just basically impossible <laughs> to take it seriously. Like you could see their underwear underneath. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was. Yeah. And, and then at a certain point they got new fabrics. I guess it was some, some advance in synthetic fabrics or something like that where all of a sudden and i think it was that batman movie with michael keaton where they finally like had a costume that didn't look totally ridiculous yeah and, and then after that things kind of turned around but um well didn't the whole country sort of explode into spandex at that point yeah. <laughs> and it's still happening you you see these jeggings they have these days <laughs> my god so anyways we we i we had all these. We made all these CDs, right? And um, and I, and then uh, my girlfriend made me move back to New York, so I had to leave my band behind. But I had all these CDs, so I used them to get gigs. And um, the CDs, uh, like, I guess I I had run into Daniel Carter, and um, and he basically introduced me to everybody else in New York City. So so a lot of people don't know who Daniel Carter is. Well, he's um, he's a African American gentleman, uh, probably right a, a little bit over seventy years old right now. Is he that old? He looks so good. He looks so young. Yeah, he's uh, lives very well. Uh, I don't think the whole time I've known him, he hasn't smoked, drank. I think he's a vegetarian too. A vegetarian, no uh, refined sugar, uh, no caffeine, uh, and he's uh has a very like practices what he preaches an anarchist philosophy i guess he kept telling me i mean he's played with some uh you know cecil taylor and sun ra and and uh, oliver lake and people like that but when i met him he kept talking about uh playing punk rock uh, with Gil Evans' two sons in a band called Frontline at CBGB's in the 80s, you know. And so he had this, like, punk rock uh, background, too. Yeah, I think he, he really liked the energy, he told me once, mm -hmm. of that music. Yeah, and that um, I think he also was sort of omnivorously uh, consuming all the different innovations of punk, because punk had this thing where you were allowed to invent your own kind of music. You know, people forget about this because they just think about, like, hardcore punk or whatever like that. But then there's all these great bands like uh, the Minutemen or the Meat Puppets or the, or the Raincoats or Gang of Four, um, you know, mm -hmm. that had all different kinds of music that would, in, in the 80s, like, people, uh, you know, would start up their own record labels and release these crazy new sounds and stuff like that. So this was then in the early 90s when I met Daniel and um 
it was a strange story how I met him too, because uh, I had been reading. There are these books called The Matrix that were uh, they were mimeographed or xeroxed, and you could buy them at like uh, black bookstores. They had like these bookstores in the ghetto for African Americans that were all about like how the white man invented AIDS to uh, eradicate black people or, you know, conspiracy theory stuff, right? But the sort of the granddaddy of these conspiracy books. And and this was before the internet, so. Yeah, and you could could mail order this stuff, you know, if you wanted to, but you'd find it at these at these black bookstores and, and uh, this matrix series was like long before the movie with Keanu Reeves came out or anything like that. These were books that would tell you all about the alien abductions and how they were picking people up in the middle of the night. And like, you know, some of them, they would take them and they would like take out their glands and make them into a human soup. And the aliens would like sit in the human soup and absorb the food through there, you know, and they let, they love the juice of fear. So they would like scare you and then put you in the blender, (laughs) smear you on their skin. And George Bush knew all about this stuff. Of course he did. You know what I mean? And it was like, Telling telling you all this stuff, so I was I was eating these books up, and um, there was a guy in there who wrote columns in some Art Kunkin paper from uh, the West Coast that were reproduced in here, and he called himself MT, like the and and in each column he would he would uh, explain that a different way, like it would be like Mike Tyson or Michael Topper or whatever, right? But it was always MT. And in one uh, of the columns, he explained that he was actually a group of artists working together to write. And these columns were about like the most way out esoteric stuff, you know, like the flower of life and, you know, the Melchizedek kind of stuff. And um, it sounds like some kind of uh, sort of offshoot of Gnostic scripture modern day somehow. It was very like esoteric stuff, kind of like... um, and he would do like occult interpretations of the Wizard of Oz or, um, you know, but he said uh, at one point deep in, in this text, you know, he's, he's like the, the author saying that he's actually a committee, you know, that it's Art Kunkin, who's this publisher from uh, L.A., and David Lynch, the filmmaker, and Charles Burns, the cartoonist, um, are getting together and coming up with all this stuff together. And I don't know if that's true or not. Empty, like empty bucket. Yeah. And uh, so that was part of the joke, too. And there was all this, like, uh, he was sort of an anti-guru or something like that. So anyways, I was working at this place called the God Box. I went to the seminary for uh, about a year before they kicked me out. And <laughs> This is one thing I've always loved about you. And so... <laughs> So like, I, and I was working at there, and I was working at this place that was a, a non-governmental organization called the World Order Models Project, and um, or WAMP, and <laughs> <laughs> the guy who ran it was this. He was he was like the villain in the um, the uh, what are the name of those um, uh, those crazy uh, Southern um, right wingers. Uh, not the, like there's the John Birch Society. He was like, Uh, he was like, he was like the bete noir of the, of the John Birch Society, the guy who ran it, this guy Saul Menlevitz. And he was like a a expert in international law and he was going to get the new world order put into place. 
And um, he was like... Sounds like the Council on Foreign Relations or something like that. Well, it's funny because his son uh, was a rebel, right? A rock and roller and a practical joker. And his son and I both worked there for this guy. And uh, one day Saul was... uh, He didn't come into work and the invitation to the Council on Foreign Relations came in. And uh, Michael is like, Gary, you go. I'll call them and I'll say, I'll say I'm Saul. And I'll say, uh, Gary is going to come instead and take notes for me. <laughs> so I went to the Council on Foreign Relations meeting. And it was great because I was like, I was standing there as this long haired dude, you know, and I was like, I was like, dude, I don't know any of these people. These people are so square, you know. And I started hanging out with this one woman who was like, you know, we sort of saw each other and we were like, we're the only weirdos in here. So we sat down and the meeting was going on and it was like, uh, you know, this is what's going. They said, okay, everybody, this is what's going on in Haiti. Uh, We have a Haitian here to tell you the scoop about what's going on in Haiti. And this old white guy, you know, know, I'm a Haitian. You know, he says, this is what's going on in Haiti, you know. And then the next day, all the newspapers reported exactly what they told them to. Because everybody else in the audience was like the editor of the New York Times and Washington Post and stuff like that. And the woman that I was hanging out with at the meeting, like I asked her at the end, I said, said, it was fun hanging out. You know, we were telling jokes the whole time about these people. And it turned out it was Joan Didion. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) So that was really... But anyways, that's a side story, but that was that was an eye-opener for me, you know what I mean, was to see like them tell everybody what to print, and then the next day, see, pick up the New York Times, there it is, Council on Foreign Relations told them. And um, so, but anyways, uh, I worked in this building called the God Box, which was uh, just off of the seminary campus, and it was all paid for by Rockefeller money, you know? And they had the National Council on the Churches there and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they had a little, um, in the elevator, they had a little announcement for a concert that was going on in the uh, in the cafeteria, no, well, in the chapel or whatever, right? Right, right. And it said, um, Mysterious Tremendum with David Lynch, right? And so I'm like, MT, David Lynch. I'm like, this is guy, Michael Topper. You know, or whatever. You know, right, this guy, right, I've right. been reading all his columns. It's meant to be. I got to check this out. You know what I mean? And Like, um, like whether, it was a, whether it was the thing or whether it was like a coinc- some kind of cosmic coincidence. I was sure it was that thing, right? right? So I showed up and, and I sat through this whole gong concert. I was going to say, isn't the Mysterious Tremendum like the gong? Don Conroe. Don Conroe yeah, you the... were in Mysterious Tremendum I... later, right? Yeah, for a little bit. <laughs> I, I visited. I was, in, I was a guest musician at the I've been gonged many times. <laughs> but so I went and I went up to this guy, uh, David Lynch, uh, afterwards. It wasn't the filmmaker, it was this British dude, you know, with a, uh, with a, um, with a mullet you know, <laughs> who played the sitar. And he was like, well, no, uh, you know, I'm not the filmmaker, I'm David A. Lynch. And I had never heard of these columns that you're talking about. But, anyways, I started playing music with him. And then he introduced me to Daniel Carter because he was in a band called Hot Kitty. So then, uh, when I when we played this this first gig, uh, I got I got some gigs based on the CD, and we went and played at this place called AKA, which was on Houston Street on the second floor uh, venue, right? 
and I had met, and Daniel Carter was playing in Hot Kitty. Oh, I got to tell you, you know, you remember Marlo from Hot Marlo, Kitty? Marlo, that's who I was going to say. I was going to say Margo, but Marlo, Marlo, yeah. Marlo was yeah. this this woman who was, um, I think at that time she may have been uh, in her 50s or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think she had previously been some kind of a sex worker or something like that. But she was very well to like set up on um, the Upper West Side. Yeah. And um, she was dealing pot. Out of her apartment and making and making uh, art films. Yeah, and she was totally bonkers, right? <laughs> and she had this free jazz band called Hot Kitty, which was like about eight people, and they would get. And Don Conroe was in it too. And I think I was in Hot Kitty also for a little while. They would play yeah. so loud. It was. And anyways, I was I was playing with them on bass, and um, so then so we played it. Um, on the, like near the equinox, uh, and then in this place, AKA with uh, Daniel Carter and some other people from Hot Kitty, and we called it the Mammals of Zod. And then gradually over the next year or so, like uh, Daniel Carter kept saying, uh, "Why don't you check out this person?" You know, and and I yeah. think the drummer dropped out, and he recommended this guy Ira Atkins. Yeah, and then um, he said, "Why don't you?" You know, my friend Sabir, Sabir Mateen came in, Gary Miles came in, and uh, I had met you uh, not, well, okay, so after I saw the, um, the, uh, the Gamatones. Right, which, with Gamatone Mike, who, who would wander around Chinatown at 3 a.m. culling noisy garbage from, like, the... The restaurants and fabric mills. <laughs> he made a whole. He, he made, made a, a whole, whole band ga- out of gamelan yeah. out, of, out of these um, like uh, lids and and trash. You yeah. Know? And I think um, it was you and Elias Khan, who's now the Nervous Cabaret, right? Yeah. And and Marianne, uh, and then uh, Mariana Fox mm-hmm. and um, Alec. Alec Baldwin. No. (laughs) No. Rybred. Yeah, what's his... uh, Anyways. Um, So I think around then I started uh, booking some music at this little club in Hell's Kitchen called The Red Room. That's right. And I invited you to come play up there. And you were playing uh, at that time with like this space age costume with like... I think it had... You had an Elvis, a plastic pink plastic Elvis wig and some sort of big ass on on it or something like that? Yeah, that was one of the uh, costumes. It, I would dress all in white, and I'd have this weird white hat with a white wig and dust my face all white, like, like and then project things on it. Like I was a projection screen. And Gamatone Mike would make all these weird slides and things with oil that moved around, and I think there was some kind of... One of them looked like pubic hair. I remember that. And I, I told him not to use that one, but he used it anyway. But <laughs> it was an awesome it was, show. Well, it was a fun show. There's and video you, of that somewhere. And you had a lot of. Um, I mean, you you were also playing the Berenbau, the yeah. electric Berenbau a lot. The the, the feedback machine, the perpetual mm-hmm. feedback machine from Brazil. Yeah. And so, um, I guess I I. Um, 
I slightly, I guess, uh, to a large extent, I was like sort of following Daniel Carter's suggestions as to who to staff the band with. I guess our circuit was we would play at ABC No Rio and um, CBGB's and Sidewalk Cafe. Mm -hmm. And then there was the uh, downtown Beirut Yeah. Uh, when that was open. And then there was all this like various and sundry artistic events that would happen in these... Well, yeah, we were just talking about that um, benefit at ABC for ABC No Rio that took place at the Abrams Art Center, mm -hmm. and we were on a bill with um, with Jamil Moondock and God is my co-pilot, and um, oh yeah, and uh, and William Parker said to Daniel Carter, "Where do you find these people?" <laughs> <laughs> so, but but somehow this turned into. Uh, Love Sphere, which has been going on for 22 years now. Oh, well, that was like one year after, I guess, we met. Uh, we we were involved with the Museum of Sound Recording, and, and I think it was... Uh, who's? I think it was... We were just rapping together, and I know it was your idea that it should be 67 years long. Yeah, I, I, and the first one, well, it, it was Love Sphere. Love Sphere Zero, I guess, was it the... Was it at the AKA or the Red Room? Yeah, and at the Exit Art, which I, yeah, like Art, in yeah. retrospect, it was like since Love Sphere, the first one, well, we just called it Love Sphere, right? Mm -hmm. It was um, it was Mammals Azad and the Gamatones, and so it was like the, a year before we had played on that same Equinox weekend, uh, you know, one day after each other. And so it was just really interesting how it was that, sort of our unwitting beginnings. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, and then we did the Love Sphere two was the, I guess the well we we went right to Love Sphere three. Oh, did we go right to Love Sphere? Yeah, because oh. I I was convinced two was a bad luck number. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so but that was a thirty six hour event at the Museum of Sound Recording, which was a that was at the Gowanus Arts Center in Brooklyn, and Dan Gatos started that right with a. Uh, it was basically a big where it wasn't a warehouse, it was like a studio space filled with all this wacky old recording equipment that had been rescued off the street during the uh, beginning of the digital age when people started <laughs> to get CD players and uh, yeah. When I left New tapes. York, there's still stuff going on in that building. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, like still an arts building of mm -hmm. some sort, but uh, yeah, he had he was collect because everybody was switching to digital, and so they were throwing away their analog equipment. And Dan Gatiss was, I, I hesitate to say, in the right place at the right time, 
<laughs> he was there. It's like the guy standing under the window as somebody says, catch this piano. <laughs> you're like, okay, I really need a piano. And uh, you just don't realize the ramifications of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but we were all kind of there, you know, with him saying, throw the piano. <laughs> yes, we're here. We'll catch it. But it, the, the, the session nights were really fun. They were, we... I met a lot of people that I still know to this day or still, I, I mean, it solidified some friendships for me. A lot of awesome people. I, I always think about um, Laura Ludwig, for example. Yeah. And um, it was interesting because Laura Ludwig uh, was this brilliant poet and uh, uh, like she had been an activist, I think. And she, I mean, she was definitely uh, kind of, what you would call kind of crazy. Like she came across as sort of... She was schizophrenic, she told me. Yeah, and okay, so we're and not she going... could like see through walls and hear voices. And that... she would tell me that uh, they were zapping her. Yeah. You know you know what I found out, though, is that they recently came out that uh, her husband worked in the Death Star down there on like Franklin Street. Uh, Do you know that building? No. It was like... Um, it's like... It's recently come out that it was actually an NSA installation. Oh, my God. And so they probably were zapping her. Wow. Because back at the time, I knew something creepy was going on in that building. It had no windows. It was like a skyscraper with no windows. Yeah, I remember you. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it looked like so um, forbidding. So that was New York City, mm -hmm. and now uh, we both live in North Carolina, uh, sort of opposite ends of the state, and uh, you live in Greensboro, and you've kind of gotten a whole scene going on over here. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Like, there's a lot of great musicians here, and one thing uh, that when I got here, there there's just no venues, really, for um, for any kind of out out there music that I could find. Yeah, and when we say out there, I mean if you've never heard this music, <laughs> it, it is really out there. And it and it like like we said in the beginning, it actually makes some people mad or people yeah. uncomfortable and so upset, yeah. Yeah. But and so um but I was lucky enough to be introduced well the weird thing, I mean this is really crazy, but a girl who went to my high school ended up being the curator of, of a museum here. And she moved out uh, just before I got here. But she happened to introduce me to some people uh, who introduced me to this guy, Al Brilliant. who's He was the uh, founder of Unicorn Books. He was the first person to give Robert Smithson a show, if you don't know who that is. He's the guy who did Spiral Jetty. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, in in his living room when Smithson was seventeen years old, you know, wow. and uh, he he was the first person to publish uh, March Piercy, Margaret Atwood, Leonard Cohen, uh, Titch Not Han, 
Uh, right, right here in Greensboro. Yeah, and he's lived here in Greensboro since the seventies, and uh, he's an amazing guy. And he has a bookstore over there that probably has the best poetry section of of any bookstore I've ever been in. Yeah, uh, I, I've been in there. It's it's got some cool stuff. Yeah, and um, his uh, his partner over there is also a cool guy. This guy, uh, Bill Hurd, who's a, a old um, uh, ship captain. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, used to, uh, I think he, he, I mean, there's so many stories, uh, Bill has too. He's like, I think he, he, um, was on the ship that brought the last load of lumber out of Haiti <laughs> when they deforested. <laughs> he wow. was, he was involved in smuggling oil up and down, uh, the rivers of Africa <laughs> for Halliburton, <laughs> you know. Anyways, but these guys are both awesome, and um, so I I just asked him if if uh, we could do a concert, some concerts there, and they were psyched. Um, and so we I started a series of all acoustic improvised music, so that way I wouldn't have to worry about amplifiers or anything mm-hmm. like that. You know, PA's. You know, screw that. And it's a bookstore. The sound is awesome. Yeah. And uh, so we finished our first year. Um, in December, and the first year I videotaped every show, and they're all up on YouTube. It's under Perceiver of the Sound League, and the story behind that is, um, uh, have you ever heard of Bodhisattva Perceiver of Sound? Yeah. Uh, also known as Avalokiteshvara or Guan Yin. Yeah, yeah. Or Quanin, you know. Guan Yin. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I was like. Uh, I guess um, very like closely connected to Kuan Yin. I guess after you know people, I, I was a real heavy drinker and and smoker and all this stuff. And uh, after I quit, I guess I was like uh, a couple of years later. I had this. Uh, I mean, well, I I guess the the way that I actually got really involved was um, I was doing an experiment where for one year. Uh, I would I would sing this tone at the exact same time every day, um, like like you'd set up a frequency. Yeah, and uh-huh. it was it was exactly an octave of twenty four hours. You know, like if you if you an octave is twice the frequency, right? So twenty four hours twice of that is uh, twelve hours twice of that is, and if you go you know uh, down to uh, you know, if you hear something like this, that's like once every second you go faster, faster, faster. It eventually becomes a tone. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Sure, sure. And um, so if uh, I would, so every day at the exact same time, I would sing this tone, right? And um, I would, uh, uh, I didn't know what, what the purpose was, but I was kind of like, it was an experiment to see what would happen, right? And so I was contacted by this, you know, being from another dimension as far as I could tell, right? And so I was using the I Ching to communicate with this being, and it turned out it was Kuan Yin, right? Wow. So this was like the beginning of the Perceiver Sound League, right? And that's, it, that's interesting because, they, you know, uh, they, I've heard people say that they don't really know the origin of the I Ching. Like there's a lot it it's recorded back in Chinese history to a certain point, but then 
that's where it says that it may have already existed. Uh, well, it's, you know, they say that's where Leibniz got the idea for uh, binary number systems, which is where, our, you know, unfortunately right. our whole computer thing comes from. But it's very fundamental. Yeah, it's 64 hexagrams, is that right? Yeah, and it's just basically like uh, 2 to the 5th, right? Well, or um, 2 to the 6th. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, and uh, I think it's Terrence McKenna said that... Uh, each hexagram was a different quality of time. Exactly. Yeah. So you can, uh, the way you describe an event is by what kind of uh, sort of um, wake it leaves in time mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not like all moments are the same. Like exactly. sometimes it's chunky, some is more smooth, some is. You know, puffy. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. It's but but it's uh, just, you know we're using three dimensional terms to describe a, a fourth dimension. Right. Yeah, the quality and, of a fourth dimension. Yeah. And and in a way, this is what all this this music is about. You know, is 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 uh, sort of like, well, when you think about it, what is music? Music is a sculpture of time because all sound is is uh, time. I always found fascinating about you was that you're really into all this um, out there music and stuff, but you're an exceptional songwriter, Aww. a really great songwriter. And uh, I mean, I've heard you called the songwriter's songwriter before. Aww. So, oh, it's true. It's really good. Uh, great music. So, I mean, are you still doing that stuff too? I did before I left New York. I did an album of songs uh, with a group called Guajira Deer Park, um, <laughs> which is uh, an old friend of mine. I think you might have met him, Ray Porter. He was one of the founders of yeah. the original Mammals of Zod. He lives in Beijing now, but he was originally from this kind of rough Texas town called Deer Park, where they had a lot of refineries. And he had his own rhythm. Like it was basically, it was a kind of, you know how in Latin music, they have the mambo, they have the son, they have the montano son, they have the... Cumbia, yeah, the all salsa. This, and, and every different rhythm has its own name and it's mm-hmm. a sort of genre. But he had, he had his own uh, rhythm that we always tried to play and we never quite got it right, you know, but he would like get frustrated. But, you know, we never got it right. So I decided to try to put this band together to play his rhythm, finally, you know, and... Uh, and it's, so I called it Guajira Deer Park because Guajira is like uh, the Cuban yeah. country music, right? And um, we still didn't get it right. But he said, like, on our recording, uh, there was one that he gave a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something, huh? But I wrote a bunch of songs for that. And uh, uh, I've been writing all these songs. Like, uh, Guanyin has a, a, a hundred quatrains that are used for fortune telling in Buddhist temples. Like you, 
you throw them a, a buck at the Buddhist temple and they give you this fortune that's one out of these hundred and they're all like four line poems. And um, so I, I'd been uh, trying to do a song based on each of the hundred. And so I did an album. Uh, I did like three albums and I did uh, a single that are uh, of those. And then when I got it down here, like I was able to... Um, do some, I mean, I've been doing some improvised music, but finding like a, um, a group of, of musicians that I can play with and like write songs with, uh, has been really hard. And that's going to take, I think a little bit longer, you know, cause I have to sort of meet people here and yeah. And you just had a, you just had a baby, you've got a family going, but it seems like your art is just just going as good as ever. I mean, you're, you've always been a, a great curator. Well, that's the thing well. is that I really like to, uh, you know, showcase other people's art. And for the second season of the Perceiver Sound League series at the bookstore, what I've been doing is I'm recording all the concerts and so that I can play the music on the radio stations. And um, so that's been that's been really fun. And it's also really time-consuming because... Uh, I have like a four track setup that I bring down there, and so then I have to do a mix down and everything like that. And it's yeah, I understand. <laughs> I, yeah, it kind of kills the moment sometimes when you're when you have to go through all the technical motions. Yeah, and it's it's challenging because to get uh, I mean people are uh, like the kind of recordings that we just listen to and take for granted are very sophisticated. Yeah, and so to get the kind of sound that people like can listen to and say oh that you know that sounds like some yeah like the kind of music that people want to make a part of their everyday world uh-huh yeah it's, it's hard yeah it's to get that level of of uh you know sound quality like you have to mic things close and then you have to like you have to do a lot of eqing of the different signals and you have to you have to mix them and and like i'm still i for years i was using this um uh uh sound forge oh yeah that uh mike got yeah. it was a pirated version that <laughs> yeah. i used rut. to i used to one, i used the version of that from mike too yeah and For i years. i really loved that program and and my computer that i've been using for 19 years finally died <laughs> <laughs> it's like what is it a little more than a calculator at this point you know? yeah and so i now have to learn a new program and stuff. <laughs> Well, it's fairly easy. I mean, the good the good news about the recording programs are they're all very visual. Yeah. So you can just look at it and go, "Oh, that's what the sound looks like. Let me move that over here." And but then you know it it always comes down to listening. Uh, I was uh, I think Andy Bassford, the guitar player, put up asked a question on Facebook the other night. He said, "Hey, um, he said I'm doing a mix down of some stuff. What what, what do I?" How do you listen to it? What do you, what do you, and I, I mean, I always listen to things on the shittiest, crappiest thing that I can hear and then the best thing I can hear and everything in between. Uh-huh. So if, if, yeah, I think Willie Nelson talked about that in his autobiography. Yeah. That was his technique too. Yeah. I mean, because people nowadays listen to whole albums on their laptop. I, can you believe it? some iPhones. people actually listen to music on their phones? Yeah, I do. I, I'm Lordy. guilty. I mean, but, if if, if I got nothing else, I'll I'll put my uh, iPhone in a cup and listen to it, and that you know. 
It was it funny. Is, when you're an addict, when you're addicted a, to music, you got to do what you got to do. I know? did this recording the other day. I did a, a trio with these, um, with the, the, I was playing the guitar on, you know? Yeah. Which yeah, is yeah. A, a bass, mm-hmm. right? And I was playing with the upright Giant bass. Giant ukulele. Yeah, as an upright <laughs> bass player uh, and a guitar on and a percussionist. And I sent the mix to the upright bass player. And uh, she was like, you know, I asked her what she thought because she didn't answer. And she said, <laughs> finally, she's just like, you know, this really like she's trying not to hurt my feelings. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's basically like, like, I, you know, I couldn't hear myself. You know what I mean? And and then uh, then I was like, oh, yeah, oh, man, it's you know, it's probably the setup that I got. You know, I can't really I don't know if these speakers really, you know, convey the bass. And then she's like, oh, I was listening to it on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, no wonder you couldn't hear yourself. You can't hear bass on those things. Know. You know? <laughs> wow. So, talking to my longtime dear friend, Gary Height, uh, a big influence in my life. Uh, all the crazy stuff. We've, we've done all kinds of stuff together. In the streets and in the clubs and in the caverns of New York City. And now we're sitting in the flying machine. Uh, yeah, hanging it's, out like old days. It's weird. You're actually from North Carolina, but I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. <I'm, laughs> well, I ask myself that quite often. But. but a lot of a lot of our our um, colleagues have left New York as well because I think um, it's, it's too expensive, man. Yeah, it's turned into a uh, like the, I know um, somebody was saying. I, I ran into somebody. She was saying like uh, she gotten kicked out of her building, and then they knocked the building down and put up this huge skyscraper. And she's standing there looking at it out on the street. You know what I mean? And there's like one light on in the whole building. Wow! Because th- it's all uh, like money laundering. It's people are using the real estate to launder, uh, you know, money from like human trafficking and. Uh, drugs and stuff like that because you can buy real estate for cash right right and so what they're doing they've they've they're turning it into a ghost town you know people are buying these things for investments and stuff like that so like the you know people can't afford to live there anymore and what they have instead are all these like fancy buildings that are and there are people whose job it is to go in there and occasionally like fluff up the pillows and stuff like that to make it look like it's lived in because it's like an official residence or something like you know what I mean? You know. Well, I mean the thing is, I guess whichever way you look, there's just so much weird stuff going on. I mean, yeah. you know, you definitely get the sense of of like we're in uncharted territory here and things. You know, the thing that was nice about New York um at the time in the nineties when we were there was that, uh, well, even then it was getting a little too expensive, but it was still, like, uh, cheap enough that a lot of people who were didn't have much money were could go there and, like, you know, if you didn't mind living in a tiny little space, it was well, like... I, well, I remember a lot of my friends lived in squats. Yeah. They, and, they had those back then, and, and, they, and they were really... They were cool, man. There was some cool things going on. There was a lot of art. There was... People weren't worried about, uh, I guess, paying rent <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. People were making art, and it was a beautiful thing, and it and it did really upset a lot of people too. Well, the thing is, is that if you have like a lot of people who want to make art 
and they can actually like walk out of the, out of their place and run into other artists on the street. That there's something about that that's like yeah. helps to build some culture. Well, you know, I was in Berlin last year, and I kind of got a sense. Of they got that. that going on there. Yeah, and I I hadn't uh, experienced that since the East Village days uh, back in the '90s. And then I walk out in the morning, and I'm I see all these people in cafes talking to each other. They they look like me. We were all, uh, you know, people were talking about art and people building sustainable housing for each other, and it was really just really interesting. And it was a good feeling. I wish I could experience more of that. I, I think don't. I don't want to move to Berlin necessarily, but you know. Yeah, I know, and that's the thing is is I think it'll I think it'll come back here, but that we got to go through some sort of transformation first, because I think um, that this, uh, you know, this big money balloon uh, is is it's a it's a sort of there is a, a level of corruption going on in that, like the the people who control uh, finance and money. Uh, they got enough power um, where they can write their own rules. And so what that means is that uh, they have really t- more power than is healthy for them. Uh, and it's going to end up backfiring on them eventually in some way. And then we'll we'll readjust and uh, that... You know, because money is supposed to serve the society as a whole. It's supposed to be a medium of exchange like a like a bloodstream, you know, in which like we can all like partake so that the whole uh, being is healthy. But this is like some sort of cancer of the blood that's kind of going on and it'll right itself or either that or we'll we'll all die. We'll perish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, yeah, this is our shot. (laughs) We, it's a forward escape no matter what happens. Yeah. So, well, look, man, We've been talking for a long time. I, I, it, it sounds like we need to we need to have another interview later on and uh, talk about some other important issues. Well, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, man. And I remember all the way through, I was asterisking things and thinking, "Oh, and I need to bring up this other thing." And <laughs> so maybe before we do that, I'll have to listen to this and. Yeah. I, okay. That, that's what we'll do. And maybe you let me come on your uh... right down the asterisk. Well, you're going to be on my radio. Yeah. You'll, maybe show. you'll let me come on there. And we can talk. You know, I'll just sort of cue you, and you can keep going. <laughs> so, but well, hey, um, Love Sphere every vernal equinox, mm-hmm. and this year it's in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, is there a LoveSphere.com anymore? We used to have LoveSphere.net. LoveSphere.net. All right. Get caught in the net. The love sphere. <laughs> yeah. Remember the first one? It was like 36 hours, man. Yeah, a 36-hour improvised musical. It was amazing. People kept going. People were sleeping on their feet, but there was always some DJ or some sound, something happened. We set up a really good frequency, a good vibration, and it's been going all these years, so I'm happy to still be a part of it after all these years. Yeah, 45 years left to go, so don't go to sleep on it. No, no, no way, man. (laughs) All right, Gary Hyde.
You're listening to Beautiful Flying Radio. I'm Lip Bone Redding. Thank you for joining me. Continue the journey at www.beautifulflyingradio.com. Be safe. Be well. <laughs>